If you would keep your Bible out, your program, I mean, your bulletin out uh, at 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're only going to get through verse 9 this morning, but uh, keep that in front of you. Um, also, wanted to remind you that there's a Bible reading guide in your uh, bulletin for you to use this week as we uh, journey together through 1 Peter. And there's also uh, on there, if you would like to use them in your small group or some discussion over coffee, uh, there are some questions on there to help help you think a little more together about uh, what the Lord is saying to us in this letter. Let's pray. Oh, Father, wow. We're coming to uh, a few verses here that are so, so rich, and I just <laughs> beg you, please, by your Spirit, would you, would you not let me get in the way of how rich these verses are? Would you, would you help us? Um, there's just no way to, um, to convey the glory that's in what we're about to study, um, because what we're about to study is all about the glory of Jesus. So would you help us to see him? Would you, by your spirit, use your word to help us trust him and hang on to him? And even when we can't hang on anymore, would you help us to know that he's hanging on to us? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Are you familiar with what a ballast is? B-A-L-L-A-S-T, a ballast. It's, um, it's something heavy that you put in the hull of a ship or a boat that helps keep the boat steady in a storm or in the, the rough waters. So that's the noun, ballast, something heavy. It, was, it could be gravel, sand, iron. Some modern ships suck in water. Uh, into the bottom of the ship to to weigh it down so that it doesn't rock and, and tip over in rough seas. But ballast is also a verb. It means to stabilize a ship or a boat by putting something heavy in its hull. So to ballast a boat uh, is something you would do to help it remain stable in rough waters. So Peter, as a fisherman would absolutely know what a ballast is. He'd be very familiar with that. Um, archaeologists have found um, the kind of fishing boat that Peter most likely used. Um, and uh, they were about 27 feet long and about 7.5 feet wide, made out of wood, very deep hull, and... Um, and they uh, would hold about 15 people. Well, one of the ways that they would ballast those boats back then, uh, scholars say, is they would use large sandbags, put those in the bottom of these boats, so that when they're out on the Sea of Galilee, for example, you know, don't rock the boat, don't tip the boat over, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, for example, that's... That story, that famous story about when the disciples and Jesus were in a fishing boat out in the Sea of Galilee and a storm came up, 
which was common in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, very strong winds and storms would come. You remember that story where the disciples were freaking out because of the storm, and Jesus was asleep in the stern, in the back of the boat, down in there. And Mark, who, uh, in his version of it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this story, but Mark's version of the story mentions a specific detail that Jesus was asleep on the cushion down in the stern of the boat, down in the bottom. Uh, Mark would know this detail because Mark's gospel uh, was written from Peter's perspective. Peter was his uh, eyewitness who told him what happened in the life of Jesus, and Mark wrote them. Um, Listen to what Mark said about that storm in Mark chapter 4. He says, uh, the boat was already filling with water. It It was a crazy storm. The disciples were there. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's as if he was saying, haven't you been around me long enough? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark is the only one who mentions the cushion on which Jesus slept. And a lot of scholars believe that that cushion was a sandbag, a ballast that was down in the hull of the boat, big, large sandbag that Jesus used as a cushion to sleep. So why all this talk about a ballast, Jimmy? Well, because in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter is going to put the ballast of real grace in your boat to steady you in the storms of your real life. That's what he's doing, because he knows that real life, um, the real life of God's elect exiles is dangerous, is scary, and involves lots of suffering. So he's going to pack the front part of this letter with sandbag after sandbag after sandbag of ballast to give weight to our boat, because he knows what we're about to face. Look at, uh, look at verse 6. It says, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. That phrase, various trials, um, could mean anything. We've talked a little bit about what the people Peter, Peter was writing to were experiencing. They were experiencing physical trials, uh, social pressure, because they're different. They belong to another kingdom, and yet they live in the kingdom of the world. They're in the world, but not of the world. And so they, they receive uh, maybe some form of persecution, but most Bible scholars think it was mostly social pressure, very similar to what we experience as believers. But they had physical trials, financial trials, relational trials. It's just 
the trials that come from the outside from living as God's exile in a foreign land. But Peter also says in his letter that there are spiritual trials that were on the inside. Um, Satan is seeking to devour them, he says. There's spiritual warfare going on. And then he said that the passions of their me-first hearts were waging war against them. So he's writing to a people that he knows are under lots of trial. And yet he starts with all of this theology about Jesus. And you may look at it and say, well, that, that's just a bunch, those first few verses, that's just a bunch of theology, it's too heavy for me, I can't track with him, I can't follow his thinking. Well, yes, it's heavy, because you need something heavy in the hull of your heart in the storms of your suffering. And that's why Peter's packing it full of these sandbags. And Peter learned that lesson on this boat. Remember, uh, they woke Jesus up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? You ever said that to Jesus? And he wakes up, he says, Peace be still to the wind and the waves, and they immediately calmed down. And he looked at them and said, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And then the disciples said, Who is this? So Peter knows that what he needs and what you and I need is we need to know who this is that's in the hull of our boat. (laughs) We need to know who this Jesus is, and we need to trust him. And if you know who he is, if you know his heart, it's going to be so much easier to trust him. Folks, Jesus is the ballast. He's the heavy, heavy, deep thing that's in the hull of our hearts that we need to steady us in the storms. But if you're like me, you may be tempted to to pack other ballasts into your life. How about, here are some, for example, do do we pack money into the hull of our ship? Money can be gone in a minute. Health, I'm just a breath from death. My job, my family, my marriage, my friends, my reputation, my house, my car, my phone, my stuff. What are we packing into the hull of our ship? Peter is saying that when you're going to go through the various trials of what it means to be a child of God, there's only one ballast that will hold you steady in the storm. You need to know and trust who Jesus is, what he has done, is doing, and will do. And that's where we're going. So with each verse, Peter loads another sandbag into the ballast to add to the ballast in our boat. Look, verse 3. Just look, look at it with me. He says, Blessed be, God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here's sandbag number one. Right now, in the middle of your your storm, you have God's great mercy. You have God's great mercy. It's the whole, he says, according to God's great mercy, he does all that he's about to say. It's the motivation of why he does what he does. He's having pity on us. The greatness of God's mercy 
is according to the greatness of our need. His mercy was great because our sin was great. But then he goes on. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. What we needed was life because we're dead in our sins and trespasses, as Paul says. So he causes us to be born again. He had to cause it. We had nothing to do with our first birth and we have nothing to do with our second birth. He caused it. And so we come back to the great hymn that we sang earlier. Um, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He's had mercy on me and shed his own blood for my soul. That's what should, that's the assurance that should control me. So, sandbag number one is right now in the the middle of your storm, you have God's great mercy. Sandbag number two, right now in the storm, we have a living hope. What are we born again to? We're born again to a living hope, he says. Even in the darkest, most terrifying storms of your life, there is hope. There's always hope, and that hope is alive. How? Why? How is it alive? Why is it alive? He goes on. It's alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope we have is alive because Jesus is alive. We have a living hope when all around us is decaying and dying, and when life feels like hell and we're drowning in the guilt and consequences of our sin and the pain of living in a broken world because our hope is in a living person not in all these things that are dying and decaying outside and inside. Our hope is in a living person who shook off the decay of death, who kicked open the doors of actual hell from the inside out, who absorbed in himself our condemnation and our guilt and the consequences of our sin, who lives right now to make all things right and all things new. He is our living hope. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. You have a living hope in the bottom of your boat to steady you in this storm. That's your second sandbag. Sandbag number three. Right now in the storm, we have an inheritance waiting. What what does he mean by inheritance? Um, As the people of Israel were traveling... uh, through the desert, out of Egypt, they remembered that God had promised Abraham the inheritance of the land of Canaan, the promised land, we call it. Uh, and remember what we said the last couple of weeks. Peter says that now we, the church, are God's Israel. We are his elect exiles. And we are on our journey, journey from the Babylon of a broken world to the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. We have that inheritance waiting on us, a place where God and his people will dwell together forever. So this is what Peter means in verse 5 when he calls our inheritance a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's It's the final salvation. And so let the hope of your final salvation from the presence of sin your final deliverance from all brokenness, the final cure for your homesick heart, 
Let your hope for that inheritance be a ballast in your boat to steady you in your storm. But Peter goes on to describe our inheritance. Uh, Israel's inheritance of the land of Canaan was never safe and secure. Enemies would come in from the outside uh, to plunder them. Idolatry cropped up from the inside to pollute them. And eventually, their land and their kingdom withered away. But Peter is saying, our inheritance is imperishable. It is not subject to death and destruction. Do you possess anything else like that? That's not subject to death or destruction? Your inheritance is imperishable. He goes on, he says, it's undefiled. It can never be spoiled, corrupted, or polluted. Do you possess anything else like this? That cannot be spoiled or defiled or polluted? Your inheritance is undefiled. And your your inheritance, he says, is unfading. It cannot wither away. Do you possess anything else like that? Your house, your health, your money, your job, your friendships, your reputation, your relationships, they can all perish, they can all be defiled, they can all fade away. And this is why we, feel, uh, we fear the storms we're going through, because we know we can lose those things. But the inheritance that we have in Jesus is safe and secure. It cannot be lost. No storm can take it away from you. Why? How? Because, he goes on to say, because this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That word kept means it's reserved. It's reserved. Uh, Later this week, at the end of this last week, Christine called uh, the bread basket and ordered and reserved a loaf of gluten-free bread. And she said, Jimmy, go to the bread basket and get my bread. So I went, and I asked the lady, I said, my wife says she reserved some gluten-free bread. What's your name? Davis. She goes, there's a loaf of bread with Davis on it. Nobody else could have that bread except me because it had my name on it. Your inheritance. No storm can steal your inheritance. It's got your name on it. It's reserved. It's kept in heaven for you. But it's not only that your inheritance is being reserved, you are being preserved. He goes on. Verse 5. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Now that word guarded is, is like being surrounded with a garrison of soldiers. So while you wait by faith on the inheritance that's reserved for you, God is at war to preserve you until you get there. You're guaranteed the inheritance and you're guarded by God until you get there. No storm can break the power of that guard that's around your life. So your inheritance is a huge sandbag that ballasts your ship. Let's move on to verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he says, in this you rejoice, he's pointing back to what he's just said in those other verses, 3 through 5. You're in suffering, but you can rejoice, not in the suffering. That's kind of weird. Yay, I'm hurting. But our joy is in what Jesus has done, even though we suffer. So anyway, here's the next sandbag, sandbag number four. He says, though now for a little while you suffer. Sandbag number four is that right now in the storm, your suffering is short. Obviously in comparison (laughs) to something. No, it doesn't feel short-lived, but Peter's placing this one piece of the puzzle of your life in perspective of the whole bigger picture. Um, I was visiting Marianne and Mike this week, and Marianne said, told me this story that when the grandchildren were around for Christmas, she was watching one of them put together one of those little wooden puzzles, you know, that's got the big pieces for kids like us who need big pieces. Um, and Marianne said, I was watching that, and I started thinking about all that we're going through as a piece of the puzzle. And she, she said, I noticed you can't stretch that piece any bigger than it is to fill the whole puzzle. You also can't shrink that piece any smaller than it is to, to, to fit in that puzzle. The piece is what it's supposed to be. The pieces are meant to be the shape and the size they are because they're part of the bigger puzzle. And so, though we suffer for a little while, that that helps us when we see the piece of suffering that we're going through, which may seem huge, and it may be a huge piece of your puzzle, but it's no bigger and no smaller than God wants it. And that's what Peter goes on to say next. Sandbag number five is uh, that your pain is not wasted because he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary, then that means they may be necessary. We saw last week in chapter four that Peter says that there are some who suffer according, that we suffer according to the will of God. And if some of these pieces are necessary, some of this suffering, some of these trials are necessary, then pain is never wasted. That's your, that's your fifth sandbag. Your pain is not wasted. Tylenol had a commercial years ago that infuriated me because it said, pain is a waste of time. So you need Tylenol. And Tylenol doesn't work anyway. But anyway... Um, not for me. Um, pain is not a waste of time. And that's what Peter is reminding you. And he, and he goes on to remind us in verse 7 when he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So sandbag number six is that right now in the storm, God is purifying your faith. If gold, which is precious, but perishes, it won't last, is tested and purified and strengthened by fire, Peter's argument is, then 
how much more is your faith, which is priceless and never perishes, how much more is it tested and purified and strengthened by what he calls fiery trials? Someone told me this week that um, they knew someone who was going through something really hard that kind of came out of the blue. as a relational uh, sadness, a relational loss, and this person that they knew is grieving it um, and, and crying, and, and in tears, this person said, but I don't want to be sanctified. And I thought, that's a beautiful picture. That's a beautiful picture of what God's doing. This person knew that the trial she was going through was sanctifying her, holifying her, making her more like Jesus, but at the same time, it hurt. Have you ever cried out, I don't want to be sanctified, God? And it reminded me of what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, we're not, necessarily God, uh, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do what's best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. We know it's best, but it hurts. But God is purifying our faith. That's a sandbag in the bottom of your boat. And the last one, sandbag number seven, is that right now in the storm, we have the, we have the promise of glory. He says in verse seven, uh, so that our, the genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gold that's put through fire comes out even more glorious. And so faith that is put through fiery trials comes out even more glorious, more praiseworthy, more honorable. So folks, the gold of, or, or, or the precious things that your storms threaten to take away from you will one day all perish. But your suffering your storms can never take away the joy that is yours in Jesus forever. It can never take away the glory that will shine out of your fire-tested life. It will never take away the honor and praise that God will receive from your life and your lips forever. Put that sandbag in your boat and sail it. And that's why we sang this hymn by John Newton a while ago where he said, Lord, why is this? Will you pursue this worm to death? And the Lord replied, it's in this way that I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials that I employ from self and pride to set you free. And I break your schemes of earthly joy, all those ways you scheme and try to get earthly joy. I break those so that you may find your all in me. And so Peter goes on, right? So right now we have these seven sandbags as a ballast in our boat to steady us. But now it becomes clear that there's a tension between our promised inheritance and our present experience. Isn't there? I mean, you say, I know all these things. I've been in church long enough to know all these good theological things are true. But there's a, a tension between my one-day hope and my right-now reality. 
between what I'm told I'll see then and what I'm experiencing. Now, what do I do with that tension? And Peter goes on in verses 8 and 9, and he says, though you have not, he describes this tension. Though you, not have, you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though I can't see him in my storm, because of what he's doing in my life, I can love him in it. Though you do not now see him, you believe him. Even though I can't see him in my storm, because of what he's working in me, I can believe in him. I can trust him. I can rest in him. He says, though you do not now see him, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. I mean, there's just no words. It's unspeakable. Even though I can't see him in my storm, I can rejoice with joy somehow. And then he says, in verse 9, you obtain the outcome or the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Even though I can't see him in my storm right now, by faith in him, by trust in him, depending on him, resting in what God has done to give me life in Jesus, I can already enjoy the salvation that I've not yet fully received. I can obtain the benefits of my salvation even though I don't have it fully yet. So what do I do? How do I live in that tension? This is, I, I want to kind of pull all this together and give you something practical to do as you live between, in the tension between uh, that not yet hope and the already uh, hard life. Um, it's called praying a prayer of lament. A lament uh, is a prayer that helps you stay engaged with your living hope in the middle of your real life. Uh, for example, Paul Miller does a great job describing what a lament is. He says, every child is a professional lamenter. As in, Mom, you said you'd take me to the pool this week. Why haven't you? I want to go today. The child is bringing together promise and hope. Mom, you said... And he's bringing that together with reality. Why haven't you? Promise and hope brought together with reality. That's the prayer of lament. It's, it's Psalm 13 that we read this morning. How long, God? How long? It's a prayer that takes God seriously enough to tell him how frustrated you are with the tension between what he promised you can hope for and what it looks like right now. It's what the disciples said to Jesus on the boat when they turned to him and said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? You're right there. Can't you see we're dying here? Why aren't you doing something? Uh, in your bulletin at the end of the sermon notes, 
I included this quote, and I think it's very helpful. I want to share it with you. Paul Miller says, When you lament, you live simultaneously in the past, present, and future. A lament connects God's past promise with my present chaos, hoping for a better future. So, he says, on, on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He connects the utter chaos of his life with the love of the Father. Jesus' lament of God forsakenness is answered with the resurrection. His Father acts on his prayer and raises him from the dead, creating a new deathless body for Jesus, which is a foretaste of the coming new creation that will utterly transform all of us who believe in him. He is our living hope through the resurrection. Jesus isn't just gritting his teeth until the resurrection. Nor is he saying, I know God is going to raise me from the dead. I just have to get through this. No, he's, he's fully alive to both his situation and his father's love. So what I, what I want to leave you with is, since Jesus is the ballast in our boat, and all that he has done for us and in us and through us and all that he is for us, um, Let's take one last look at him. I want to show you, hopefully we can. This is a masterpiece of artwork drawn by five-and-a-half-year-old Abby Davis, my oldest child. Um, when she was uh, at a VBS, Vacation Bible School, and the assignment was draw something that helps you remember what you learned today. So, with the genius strokes of Crayola markers, she drew Jesus on the cross. Now, now this Jesus has no arms, uh, only and no body, and and just legs. He also has—it's hard to see there—but he also has what looks like a tarantula on his head. That—that's the. Uh, that's the uh, crown of thorns. But the strangest thing about this picture is that there's a, there's a smile on Jesus' face. And when she brought that home, I was tempted to correct her with all the great theology and say, dear, he was suffering bodily and spiritually for our sin. The smile is not appropriate. But then I thought, but no, it is, because the book of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. She titled it, Jesus Suffered on the Cross. Friends, this is the Jesus that's in the ballast of your boat, that is the ballast of your boat. I know what you're going through is hard. I know it is. But you can trust him. Father God, help us. Because we want to trust Jesus. We want to trust him. But it's hard. And so we need this table. We need this reminder that the one who knows us best, loves us most, and suffered for us, 
and grieves with us as he's in it with us, in the storms with us. He is not, he is not disengaged or disinterested in the storm that we're going through. He's in the bottom of the boat. He's telling us, look, listen to what I've done for you. Look at me. I'm, I'm your great mercy. I'm your living hope. I'm your salvation. I'm working something in you through these trials. You can trust me. And so, Father, we ask that you would use this meal, this broken bread and this crushed grape to remind us that the one who is crushed for us is with us and he's not against us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.